Hello, listeners. Just a quick note about this episode. The conversation I have with retired Sergeant Major Joe Vega was originally recorded during the inaugural Subterranean Challenges and War and Peace Conference held in Herzliya, Israel in December of 2019 at the Interdisciplinary Center in Herzliya with support from the IDC International Radio. Special thanks to Dr. Daphne Richmond Bark, the conference organizer, and Atai Hanman, who provided the technical support for the recording. Okay, enjoy the show. You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. I'm joined by Mr. Joe Vega, who works for the Asymmetric Warfare Group in the U.S. Army and is probably the only subject matter expert that I know on underground warfare. Joe, thanks for coming and could you give us a little bit of background on how you became the the guy? Uh, sure, John. First of all, thanks for having me. Back in uh, 1990, during the first Gulf War, we discovered a uh, chemical plant, which was disguised as a mill factory. Obviously, through ISR and our special reconnaissance, we were able to locate it and destroy it. And uh, so what happened after that is uh, the enemy realized that we have uh, superior capabilities when it comes to ISR, and they started hiding amongst the people in the cities and uh, underground. Obviously, if they're hiding underground, we can't see them from the sky. As we we started seeing this pattern more and more, and uh, because of the fear of weapons of mass destruction, we decided we might as well set up a team uh, back in the special ops community to not only locate, but be able to destroy uh, these capabilities. For that, we had to go into tunnels. It started initially with uh, small tunnels, and they got bigger and bigger and bigger. So I've been working this since 1991. Most of it was all classified, and... Uh, Within the last few years, the Army has realized that the special ops community cannot handle everything that's out there. Yeah, talk to me about that. I know not to ask you about the kind of the special mission. And, you know, every military usually has special forces that do get trained for every environment to include the underground and entering military underground facilities, going down. You know, but the U.S. Army kind of got interested from a big army, what we call big army, everybody needs to be prepared initiative. And can you walk us through that? Uh, we were looking at, uh, at North Korea, and we were looking at what are the capabilities. It's no secret that North Korea has uh, really over 5,000 deep underground facilities. If you think about those 5,000, let's say 400 are uh, selected targets that the U.S. Uh, Army needs to enter. And uh, it might not be destroy everything, but at least uh, uh, take them out of, uh, out, of, out of function. Out of those, uh, let's say out of those 400, there's 40 that, again, this is hypothetical. Let's say there's 40, 1% that contains chemical materials, hazardous materials that uh, can create uh, mass casualties. So that's 40. The troops that we have trained in the Special Operations Community can only handle a handful. So you think about, even if they were to handle the 40, who is going to go into the other 360? So the Army realized, you know what, we better start, actually JSOC started and said, we better start distributing this information to other, uh, other parts of the General Purpose Forces. So we started with 82nd, we started with the uh, 10th Mountain Division, we started 100, uh, 100, oh, 101st to see uh, what their capabilities are. What was generic to uh, the organization, organic to the unit when it came to capabilities, equipment, uh, enablers that they could use. And we realized that they just didn't have the capabilities. So we made a, a list of equipment that, that needed to be, uh, to be purchased throughout the Army. And we went back and we, we trained them. We set up a, it was initially a three-day course for the staff, training the staff how to plan. Not so much 
how to do MDMP and how to plan, but what are the logistical nightmares that they're going to encounter on uh, for this type of mission? Because it's very resource intensive. So if I can't get in there, how am I going to get in? Are we jumping in? Is it an air assault? Are we driving in? How do I get all the equipment that I need? If I have exothermic torches, how do I jam the bottles? How do I get O2 into my uh, breathing apparatus? So naturally, they didn't, they didn't like what they heard. And we also developed a five-day course for tactical units, and we trained all the leadership. So that's like the infantry guys you're going to send down there. Infantry guys we will send send yeah. down. So we, we were training uh, company commanders, first sergeants, platoon leaders, squad leaders. And what we did was we formed them to squads. We wanted to know what it felt like to be a squad and go uh, underground. And by doing this, then they would know how to lead their troops. They realized themselves that it's, it's hard work. It could take anywhere between 40 minutes on some of these tunnels. And some of these tunnels have taken us up to 10 hours, 12 hours. I personally have been 17 hours on the ground uh, before, uh, be- between breaching and, uh, and clearing an underground facility. So was some of this, let's say, momentum or focus on underground warfare driven by other factors such as it showing up on the battlefield more and the the urban warfare aspect, not that that would make me happy or anything as an urban warfare scholar, but was it driven by what's what we're seeing on the battlefields today? It was driven mostly by the threat of North Korea at first, but the more and more we saw these types of facilities being built throughout the world, we saw experts flying to different countries. I'll tell you right now, the Norwegians are the best builders. So if you see a large group of civil engineers, Norwegians in the airport somewhere, you can kind of say, hmm, let's see what, what are they doing? But um, another thing was General Milley stating that the next combat operation will be a large-scale combat operation in mega city. Now, mega cities, obviously, cities with over 10 million people, all have some type of tunnels. And yep. most of the tunnels, though, used by civilians, can be converted into military types. Headquarters, uh, C2, they can just organize them, use them for, uh, to consolidate, regroup, uh, resupply. I, I remember some of that conversation that as the Army was looking at mega cities. But let me ask them what I call the million-dollar question, and there's no other person that can answer this correctly. For a non-special, specially trained soldier, a regular member of the the army, what makes underground so hard? The truth is just uh, not knowing what to expect right now. When we first started, same thing. I'm not afraid to say or ashamed to say that the way we learned was by failure. We tried different things and we failed and said, okay, how do we how do we defeat this? How do we conquer this these things? Uh, believe it or not. Uh, here, you know, uh, we're in special social ops. We have uh, a team of 70 guys, all big strapping dudes. We're down underground. Before I know it, the guys next to me are passing out. You know, I'm laughing. Ah, look at these guys, how weak. And before I know it, I pass out. And what we didn't understand was all the, the different challenges. So air quality is the first thing. And we realized, you know, we have to get uh, air monitors. Before we knew it, we were full MOP4 gear. Now, MOP4 doesn't protect you against everything. So then we had to develop different kits, and we went with the, what's now being issued as the Dr. Sko kit, which is pretty much a, a different type of protective uniform. But the mask, we use PAPRs, and then uh, use an SCBA, or a breathing apparatus type system. Once you get used to it, you can probably last in that suit for about an hour, or with air, and then you have to recharge your bottles. So the problem is when you take all that, that equipment that the regular army is not used to, first of all, a guy that's not used to training with a breathing apparatus is only going to last 20 minutes. <laughs> so what does that tell me? When I plan now, I have to, if I was planning on 50 bottles, now I have to multiply that by maybe four or five because these guys are going to be switching off more and more. Obviously, when the guys run out of out of air, they're going to come out. So now I need another element to take the lead. So you got to kind of leapfrog them every once in a while that way you don't burn one team out. They also realize that the breaching part 
is uh, is hard. You know, you can do an initial breaching explosives, and once you're down, then it's how do you breach? Most of it's mechanical breaching. We do burn uh, with exothermic torches, but when you do that, once again, you have to kind of poke a hole first, try to get an air reading once on the other side of the door, and then you have to use your breathing apparatus while you're while you're cutting because if not, obviously fire consumes the O2 and uh, the guys will start passing out. Another thing that we learned as we were cutting metal underground and right. not knowing what was happening. You shared with me though about the what will happen to some people if they don't know they're claustrophobic and they enter a dark where all your senses so start to go away. Roger, so confined spaces is one. We build uh, confined space training. It's just small tunnels and we put guys in there. Uh, we can move in different ways so the guys don't learn what they, you know, say, okay, I remember how, now how to get in, how to get out. And it's totally dark. You're in a confined space, probably three by three. So you can imagine me, you know, how, how bad I felt yeah. in there. And you kind of, you have to feel your way. And it has different layers until you come out the other side. That one is uh, is, is pretty bad. I, uh, I'll say so myself. It's, uh, it's intensive and you want to get out of there as soon as you can. But after you do it several times, you, you get used to it. But there's some people that when they're in total dark will get vertigo, will not know what, where up and down is. And those guys, obviously, uh, there's nothing you can do about that. Some people say, oh, you can use some of the patches behind the neck, right? but it just throws you completely off. Those guys will, will fall down, they'll pass out. Uh, some of the tunnels that we've been in that had water in them and um, a soft surface on the side. Same thing, the noise reverberates, it bounces off and uh, throws you off so you don't know what's, what's going on. Another thing is any weapon that you fire is multiplied. So the decibels are multiplied. So it's not just ear protection. It's really ear protection and, and blast, over overpressure. So just a matter of firing a weapon underground, that overpressure is going to get to you after a while. So again, and that's one of the reasons why you have to make sure you have, you have enough. And that's the thing, you can't just take a small squad and say, we're going to clear this whole thing. It's really a, a company-sized operation because you have to continuously replace people in and out because they just can't last. Imagine uh, being in, in MOP4 for 17 hours in an underneath structure. And, uh, you know, obviously we can drink water, but you can't eat. How do you go to the bathroom? So it makes you appreciate the commercials for adult diapers. <laughs> yeah. Uh, for anybody that knows, MOP4 is, is a chemical suit that you wear and there's you don't get out of it once you're in it uh, basically you're saying that in some underground environments that the air quality is so low the the threat of other contaminants are, is so high i mean it sounds like in some circumstances this can be a very very dangerous space to enter it is now you know soldiers are resilient and they will adapt and the more you do it the more you'll realize that your ttps that exist today and the sops that you have within your own units they will work underground it's just, again, because it's a different environment. And that's all it is, an environment. And I tell people, do you really change your TTPs when you fight in the jungle versus the desert? Do you change your TTPs when you fight in the Arctic versus an urban area? They're pretty much the same. Now, the equipment changes that you need and the clothing changes. So it's the same thing. For me, subterranean is just an environment. And I just need to know what are the resources I need? How can I utilize them to be the most effective? But the SOPs, the TTPs, clearing rooms, they all stay the same. So would you recommend, not that this is a loaded question, but it sounds like some of the challenges of entering the underground could be mitigated with ex just exposure, soldiers being exposed to it. Exposure and then uh, the equipment needed. Now, I always, I always like to train uh, the units with their, what's organic to the unit and their own enablers because if, let's say, you, we do have a large-scale combat operations in Mega City, there's tunnels everywhere. Well, not everybody's going to have the specialized equipment. The specialized equipment is really for the deep underground facilities where we may have the threat of a weapons of mass destruction or some chemical uh, products. So regardless if you have that equipment or not, everybody has to learn. Uh, last, in the last two years, we trained 28 brigades on how to fight underground. Now, one of, some of the challenges are 
How do we keep them proficient? How do we continue that, that training so that they don't lose? Because it's a, it's, it is a perishable skill. If you don't do it continuously, some of the TTPs or some of the use of some of the equipment, you will lose it. You have to be proficient at cutting with an atomic torch. You have to be uh, proficient at breaching, mechanical breaching, ballistic breaching, shotgun breaching, and like I said, thermal breaching. Explosive breaching, we set up a course. It was called MTT Charlie. We traveled throughout the different uh, units and taught them how to do uh, explosive for class one, class two, and class three doors. Class four is for the tier ones. For anybody, that's a really thick door. Yes, it's a big, big door that like you would see in uh, like an ASP. Or... But the thing with the, with the explosives is, again, it comes to a point where the Army, again, uh, doesn't teach beyond. So we went back to JSOC, and JSOC actually uh, declassified some of the charges that we had developed for, for some of these doors. And uh, what we did was we went to TRADOC, told them this is, needs to be a course that we can teach to the engineers. So we set up a... Specialized deliberate breaching course at uh, Fort Leonard, Missouri, at the engineer school. It's a 10-day course, and it teaches them how to go beyond just uh, level one and two. You remind us that as we think through this, we think about encountering tunnels, sending military forces down there if that's what you're going to do. It is specialized in different communities. An engineering unit <clears throat> will have different equipment and need to have different training than you know the infantry guy who has might have a different mission. It, Roger, there's two enablers that the units really need. That's uh, the chemical, the Seaburn uh, okay. personnel, which unfortunately we haven't trained uh, for, with Seaburn for the last 17 years, and then uh, and then the engineers. Uh, those are two key elements, enablers, that without those, you're not going to gain access. You're probably not going to be able to get your, your air monitors or readings, and they have the equipment uh, to go underground, and they have the breathing apparatus, they have the Dr. Sko kits, the engineers will have all the breaching equipment. Now, we went to the PM for the engineers, uh, PM Scott, and we actually told them what needed to be developed, and they developed what they call the urban breaching kits. So every BEB, Brigade Engineering Battalion, has, has those kits. Unfortunately, most of the infantry brigades or the battalions within the brigades uh, don't know that they're there, that they exist. So we have to go to units and uh, pose them to what's organic to the unit, what the engineers have, what their enablers have. Believe it or not, we have to expose them to the engineers, the chemical, uh, and what uh, the Seaburn guys, and what they have. Even even the dogs, uh, dog hunters and MPs. Most of the infantry battalions don't even realize that every brigade has a company of MPs that's attached to them. With dogs. With dogs. Yeah, and dogs are, I mean, it's kind of popular media. Dogs are a, a tool for the underground. I throw a dog in there every time. As soon as I open that door, if the air quality is good, we throw the dog, the dog in. I rather, I've lost... Throughout my career, I've lost 25 dogs, but I'd rather lose 25 dogs than 25 soldiers. At least I don't have to go to the mother pup and explain why her puppy died. Uh, the other thing is we tried to develop a, a protective mask for the dog, so if their air quality wasn't bad, we could still throw them in. The thinking process was I could put a camera on him, throw him in. Robots are good, and you, can, you have to use robots, but a robot is only going to see where I send them. Uh, whereas the dog is going to detect a person, he's going to smell him, he's going to go to him, and then he's going to do his job. Uh, unfortunately, it was a mask, and we tried to develop some, but he lost a sense of smell. So the air quality is good, we'll send him in. If not, then we'll send a team in with SCBAs. It's really interesting that sometimes soldiers just don't know, or units, or leaders, or military force just don't know what the what they have available to help them in that environment. So my, my last question, and I think we've talked about this before, so I didn't listen to Joe Vega, the U.S. Army didn't listen to you, didn't continue the training, didn't continue to prepare for the underground, but there I am in an urban area and there is underground. What do I have available or what should I at least think about when I'm heading down? So uh, it's okay to use your tack light. Most people think, oh, I'm going to have to be in the dark completely. If you have no night vision devices or even in some instances, uh, you're better off with light than without it. 
Because some people don't realize night vision doesn't work, and if there's no ambient light, if there's light, no ambient light, there is no uh, there's no way your knots are going to work. Now, what we did is we uh, uh, we developed an assistant that purchases of what's called the Cody. The Cody is a thermal uh, lens that can be adapted to the, uh, the scope on your nods. So now you have both uh, the, the night vision device with ambient light and you have your thermal. You can use them both simultaneous, which is pretty good because I can see just about everything and I can see the form of the person. And then if I lose all ambient light, well, then I can turn up my Cody and okay. just see the thermal. So when in doubt, use white light. When in doubt, use white light. Okay. And, uh, and just keep on moving. We always say surprise, speed, and violence of action. Well, I tell the guys, once you're in, surprise is gone. And speed, yes. It just means keep maneuvering, keep moving, but move fast, but move with control. You don't want to move so fast that you lose control because obviously in a, if you don't know uh, if there's more than one drift, hallways we call drift, and now you get divided, the worst thing you want is to, is to lose somebody in a tunnel and not be able to find them. There's TTPs, like we'll say uh, we're always going to move right, hold left. So what does that mean? If I come to a Y intersection, I'm always going to move to the right, to the right, to the right, and I'll put two personnel for security on that left side. The other thing is you lose comms. Yep. So whenever Can't, I because radio signals degree, don't work underground. So whenever I do a 90 degree angle, if, uh, we're using MPU five radios, which create a mesh network. But now I have to keep two guys at that intersection. So as you can imagine, if I get a, a lot of 90 degree turns, at what point do I run out of people because yep. they're all pulling, you know, they're conducting the mesh network for me. So uh, mapping, that's one of the things that we really are, are working, struggling on is to create the Promethea effects. I don't know if you saw that movie <laughs> yes, <laughs> where I've they throw the little thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that's what we're trying with drones to create that. We can talk about it later, but uh, there's some success, but a lot of problems. So right now it's old school. It's a guy uh, with a compass counting pace. Yep. And say, okay, I'm going, uh, you know, north, uh, you know, 100 meters, and then I turned uh, east. Or, so yeah, I can imagine it's easy to. I I think one of the psychologists <clears throat> talked about you can not only get vertigo and lose sense of what's up and down, you can lose a sense of time down there. Yes, because uh, obviously there's no there's no sense of daylight, there's no sense of time, and the longer you're there, the the more you lose sense of you know how long have I been down here. That's crazy. That's how you end up with 17 hours on the ground. Yeah. Well, Joe, I, I really appreciate your time, and I don't know of any other expert. I hope we keep our eye on this this challenge, because I don't think it's going away, especially in urban areas. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much. I said it's an, it was an honor to be here. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out MDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.